0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films, every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. A Crime on the Bayou is the third film in director Nancy Bierski's trilogy, Profiling brave individuals who have fought for justice in and around the civil rights era, following The Loving Story, The Rape of Reese Taylor, and now this one, A Crime on the Bayou. It starts with this simple, in most communities, anywhere else in in the world maybe, uh, a, a non-issue, a non-crime that becomes something so much more. It, it involves Gary Duncan, who uh, was trying to break up a fight between a white, two white boys and a black teenager. And it escalates from there into him being arrested, him being harassed, his life endangered. Uh, There's so much more here that happened in 1966. And, um, I don't think I'm doing justice to describing this story, but I, we're going to talk to the director and producer of this film. And that would be Nancy Bierski. Nancy, help me describe this story better than I just did.
1: Well, uh, you've done a wonderful job. Um, I, and all I can do is extend what you've said a little bit further to point out that that fight that ensued um, in October of 1966 um, happened as these boys were leaving um, an integrated, the only integrated school in Plaquemines Parish. Um, and this was taking place in 66, the school had just been integrated and keep in mind the Brown v. Board was in 1954. So it took all that time for Plaquemines Parish to go along with the uh, federal mandate to integrate schools. And that was chiefly a result of Leander Perez, who was the kind of boss of the parish and was able to um, kind of rule it like a fiefdom. And and stop the schools from being integrated. Well, finally, the federal federal government stepped in, and did integrate that school. And this is a month into this school integration, and these two these actually four white boys and two black kids are walking home from school, and the white boys start to bully the black kids, and um, and Gary drives by in his car, and the black kids happen to be his nephew and his. Um, his, his cousin, I think. And um, he stops and he sees what's happening and he decides he wants to break up the fight. And he moves towards the white kids and he says, you know, what's going on? And they say, well, all we want to do is know, his, know their name. And he says, well, my name is Gary and I think it's time for you to go home. And as he's saying this, he touches the elbow of one of the boys. And as one would often do when you're trying to break up a fight, you know, just kind of touch them to, to get them to move on. And the father of one of the white boys sees what's happening, and calls the police. And before you know it, Gary is arrested for assault on a minor.
0: And it goes from there, right? He's arrested. He and, and there's a, there's so much in this film that is not just a Gary Duncan's story, but it's so illustrative of the system under which uh, people of Plaquemine County, Louisiana, as well as so much of the country let's be fair uh, uh, that was living under this system in which the audacity of a black man to even approach a white man was considered reason for a for someone to be put under arrest is uh, is this, is that was the that was the world we were living in in much of the country in 1966
1: that's right you know one of the challenges in telling these stories um is to not only uplift and and elevate the personal story of Gary and ultimately Richard Sobel, the white lawyer who comes in to help him on this case, but also to expand it to the larger canvas, which it's on already to make that point that so many other people would have been treated this way, that it was considered a crime to, touch, certainly not to touch a white person and even to look at them, to even, you know, not get out of their way when they're walking down the street. This is emblematic of everything that was going on in the country. And that's, that's always the, the obligation one feels when one is making these movies to, to, to make it clear that it didn't just happen to Gary. Now, what was unique about Gary was his desire to stand up to it and his commitment to fight it. And not just be taken down by it. I mean, for understandable reasons, a lot of people end up pleading out these cases. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to have it on their record. They're working for a living. They have to get back to work. Um, But Gary really believed in fighting for what was right.
0: Yeah. Well, let's not leave out the role his mother played as well nice. in that story. I, th- I thought that, that again, it's, it's, it's very touching to see that not only was his mother determined for justice to be done in in, in this case, but for Gary, the, the the relationship, the bond that those two shared, and that he was willing to put his life literally at risk for to go to court and to fight this.
1: You know, it's interesting, um, I'm thinking as you're saying that, that the families of all three of these subjects of our film, The Loving Story, The Rape of Recy Taylor, and Gary Duncan, these families play such a large role right. in giving these people these, because they're in all, all three cases, they're relatively young. You know, Mildred and, and, and Reese Taylor, they're in their 20s, and Gary's 19. To, to imbue in them the confidence and the strength to stand up against the system and let them know that they're going to be behind them. Um, you know, Mildred just wanted to return to Virginia to be with her family. She missed them desperately, and and those were people who gave her strength. Um, same thing with Rishi Taylor and Gary, and all three, by the way, are were people of faith. You know, they were all church going people, and they, they. I think a lot of that had to do with the strength that they exhibited in in this these
0: crises. We can't tell the story without t- talking about. Leander Perez, who literally looks like someone who was cast (laughs) from a movie, from a, from a, you know, a casting call. The sheer audacity and reach of his rule and of his bigotry, even by this, by the standards of the, the mid 1960s, is is head and shoulders above anyone that I know of. You can talk about Bull Connor, the sheriff in Selma. You can talk about George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, and many less dramatic There is just a kind of a, a murderer's row of, of, of bigots from that era that, that a lot of people are familiar with. I had never heard of him until I saw a crime on the bayou. So it's an amazing, amazingly horrible, um story tragic story for the people who lived under this iron rule of this and unabashedly bigoted man
1: right um he did he did a lot for that parish you know he he legally and illegally he managed to stipend off a lot of the money that came out of the oil discoveries during that period oil in the parish was what really set the parish up and allowed them to build roads and build schools and all of that kind of thing. So there were some people that were grateful to him, but there were as many that understood that that bigotry was toxic. And um, and I think that we kind of reflect that in the film. We have people who speak on, to, to those issues. This guy was not only a, a first-class bigot, but he was also a media hound. And so we had no trouble finding um, really exciting footage of him where he's speaking very plainly. I shouldn't say exciting because I'm sure for some people it might even act as a trigger because his language is so ugly, but it's um it's revealing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I I I you know, I use this word guardedly. Thank you for bringing him to my attention and uh but uh there uh, again what was going on with Gary Duncan in the in this case is one thing, but you mentioned earlier uh the the attorney, Richard Sobel, who also has a a wonderful story in terms of his commitment to seeing justice done. Let's talk about Richard Sobel a little bit.
1: Well, he's also a hero of this film. Um, Richard Sobel was among a number of white attorneys, young men, um, and very often Jewish attorneys who came to Plaquemines Parish and other parts of Louisiana and all, all throughout the Deep South to help in civil rights cases. You know, the the Freedom Summer technically was called in, 90, that was 1964, this is 66. And so he was kind of on the, the wave of Freedom Summer uh, to come down there and help on cases that, you know, many of the black attorneys were just not getting, they weren't being heard in the courts. You know, they, they were treated so badly. The attorneys themselves were treated so badly in the courts that they really did need the, um, alliances with white attorneys to make sure that their cases were going to get heard. Right. So it was a delicate thing for Richard Sobel. He understood that for some people it may be considered imposing on Black attorneys, but the Black attorneys, in at least in our story, seem to appreciate and embrace those who come down and are as earnestly involved as he was. He didn't come down just for three weeks, he stayed.
0: Right, yeah, he, he's just a terrific person. And in addition to being a very able counsel, very able attorney uh, on behalf of. uh... Well,
1: he he forms an an incredibly important bond with Gary Sobel, and that also becomes emblematic, I think, of the time when whites and blacks were working together to try to um, find solutions to these egregious things that were going on in the South. And um, and they remain friends their entire life. So for me, the, the that relationship between Richard Sobel and Gary Duncan is the heartbeat of the movie.
0: It certainly is. And you'd mention him working with the the uh, there was a firm. And if I get this, uh, if I say this incorrectly, please help me out.
1: It's Collins, Douglas, and Eli. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Co- uh, Collins, Douglas, and Eli, and how they worked together. And uh, as you described it, how difficult it was for uh, Black attorneys just to be in court. They were often told the wrong time to be there or to be there on a d- day the court was closed. There were all kinds of harassments that took place. So for Richard Sobel to be there, to be who to hold him to account, essentially. Mm-hmm. And also having Eli's son, is it Lola's as well? Lo- is Lo- it,
1: Lowest yes. Light.
0: yes. Yeah. I thought he was a, a wonderful kind of narrator, um, someone who would give the film context. I, I thought he was just a, a a terrific person to have involved in the, in the film. You want to talk a little bit about his role in the film?
1: I, Oh, I agree. Um, he, he is one of the people that helps us put it on a larger canvas. And, um and, and he's, I, I think I'm very, very fortunate to have people like, Lois, Eli, at Robert Collins, and, and Armin Durfner, who lived this, this story. They're not just experts that we bring on stage to tell us about that history and put it in context, but they lived it. They're witnesses. And you can feel it when Lois, Eli, is speaking about the experience his father had. You can see how, how emotionally involved he is in talking about it. It really does add a tremendous depth to the story. I should say to the film. The story already has its depth.
0: Plaquemine Parish in in Louisiana uh, is a world onto its own, as you described, As Ed, and Leander uh, Perez essentially runs it like a banana republic. And yes, he did essentially tap into the industry that was so prevalent in the in the Gulf Coast there that uh, of oil oil production, and some benefited from it, but certainly the the people who who were African American who who did not. One of the things that I, as I'm watching this film, and I, I I just kept coming back to this idea of just how much wreckage not only our own system of apartheid has has wrought upon the, these people in in the South as well as across the country. To be honest, but I keep thinking about the loss of life and how many lives were completely wasted in this. In this system. And I think about the people who are part of the Atlantic crossing, how many millions of people died. I just, the, the, the level of destruction and our inability to kind of come to grips with it and talk about it honestly, just be honest about it. You know, what happened and how this happened over a 400 year period, it continues to haunt us. It continues to bedevil us as a society and as people. And your story is another wonderful example of just Humanizing the cost that we're talking about here, in ways that are just profound. And i I don't have I don't really have a question. I just want to acknowledge that this is one sliver of, of a gigantic um, tapestry of of the of this of the legacy of this system.
1: Well, Mike, thank you very much. Um, it's it's what motivates us to tell these stories that they can't stay hidden. I mean, some of the more um, visual experiences and stories are out there, and um, more and more people know of them. But there are all, there are so many Gary Duncans, there are so many Reese Taylors um, whose stories haven't been told. And I think it's really incumbent upon us to tell as many of them as we can, because these people should not just be allocated to the dustbin of history. um, If they even get that far, you know, they they fought for justice in many cases. And even if they didn't fight for them, if they lost their lives because of these systems or they suffered under these systems, um, we have to know about it. We have to be reminded because it continues today. I mean, if this were just history, Fine, it would be important to have that information, but it isn't just history. This is reality being reconsidered.
0: Right. Do you know the person who when I was watching a crime on the bayou, the, the the one person in the film that personified the sort of the lost lives, the lost opportunities, the the just sheer ugly, bitter legacy of of, of racism and was Ruby Bridges. Mm. You know, watching this, what was she, five or six years old being escorted into a school? How in the world anyone at, at that point in their life could have any idea of what was happening and why and how? And just kind of the trauma of what she went through as a just a very young, young girl.
1: I I completely agree with you. I was very um moved by an image that was spread around the internet over the weekend of Ruby, the shadow of Ruby Bridges behind Kamala Harris, who, you know, Kamala is walking upright and, and, and is full of confidence and, and bravado in a way, in a good way, in the best way possible. And Ruby Bridges, she may not have known what was going on, but I think she walked into that school with some pride. Yeah, um, and you know she's been interviewed since then as an adult, and I think she certainly does have a sense of what was happening. But there's no question that people who lived through that era have to have suffered from some kind of PTSD because they felt assaulted every day of their lives.
0: We're speaking with the director and producer of this wonderful documentary film called "A Crime on the Bayou." That's that would be Nancy Birsky, and it's part of its rollout, if you will, is at Doc NYC. I want to let people know how they can find out and how how they can watch this wonderful film by going to docnyc.net and you will will have, there's over 70, 80 feature length documentary films as well as a number dozens of short uh, docs there and how wonderful it is that we're seeing the embrace of uh, the virtual festival. Certainly it's the only way we're going to be able to see these world premieres international premieres with the situation we're dealing with in this country with covid but nonetheless it's an opportunity and i strongly recommend that you check out a crime on the bayou and um also nancy i know you're working you continue to produce wonderful films i didn't even mention some of the other ones that uh, that you that you have produced including Loving story, and by Sidney Lumet, uh, which I just loved. I I had I knew he was a great director, but after watching your that documentary film that you you made, I just my appreciation of him went just, just skyrocketed. It was really a terrific, terrific watch. So I recommend that to anyone who who cares about filmmaking. And well, so-
1: let me let me just mention one other thing about Sydney The by Sidney Lumet, um, it is much more in, in an interesting way interwoven with these three. Uh, films in our trilogy, because the theme, I think, that comes out most strongly in that interview and in the way we put it on the screen is his sense of morality and his sense of what's fair and what's right and and the ability to stand up against forces of evil as unpopular as standing up may be if you're in the police force, for instance, like Serpico um, and Prince of the City and things like that. So anyway, not to. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I recommend oh. If people are interested in in these issues that come out in this trilogy, they may also be interested in by City Lumet.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. I mean, he was right, he was really uh making films about uh the the blacklisting of writers during the 50s of the sort of the McCarthy scare. Uh and you're right. Um his his sense of justice is is what really comes across in his films and in that documentary as well in terms of just what what a wonderful person he was as well.
1: Very quickly um I'm happy to mention that I'm working on just it's in development a script on um turning afternoon of a fawn into a narrative film called Tanning. And um and just as we turned the loving story into loving which I was a producer on we we Jeff Nichols we were very fortunate to have Jeff Nichols direct it. This one is one I hope to direct and um it is the narrative version of Afternoon of the
0: That's fantastic. That was a, the, the, talk about another documentary about somebody I don't I knew nothing about. Oh my god, that was amazing. That's an amazing story. Uh who's your lead do you have a lead actor in it?
1: Yet? I do, but I'm not. as ever- OK, OK. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anytime, Nancy. Uh, um, congratulations on this film, A Crime on the Bayou, Doc NYC and its premiere and all of those things, as well as your future projects. And you're welcome anytime. Thank, Thank you.
1: Mike. It's it's wonderful to be hosted by you. A real pleasure to talk with you.
0: Thank you. Again, the film is called A Crime on the Bayou. We've been speaking with the director and producer and that would be Nancy Bierski. Thank you so very much.